The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. Each episode, we look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. Why am I hosting this show? Well, frankly, it's what I wish I had had when facing difficult junctions in my career. I'm an extremely anxious overachiever. I have what we in my family call transportation anxiety. I'm always waiting for bad news, for the other shoe to drop. I fear that people in my life will die or leave me almost all the time. I have a lot of social anxiety, which makes everyday life very humbling. You know, I'm also an extreme introvert who adores public speaking, and I do many speaking events a year. What I found is there's one common thread among my audiences. The most ambitious professionals are so anxious. From 20 years as a progressive political consultant and a student of people at work, here's what I know. No one can change the world if they're unhappy at work. And so many people are unhappy. For many reasons, of course, but in particular because of anxiety and depression and other mental health struggles. And the problem is set to get even worse because the millennial and Gen Z cohorts have been dubbed the most anxious generations. And in today's workplace, leaders pretend that they don't have anxiety or mood disorders. It's still taboo to talk about our mental health at work for most of us, despite the huge increase in amenities for physical wellness like yoga rooms or treadmill desks or bouncy balls that you can sit on. Although so much has been done rightly To promote diversity and wellness at work, there's a giant hole in the understanding of how temperament and emotions play not just into our daily grind at the office, but into our very trajectory of success. We're in desperate need for better models of leadership, especially in a society that tells us anxiety and depression are weaknesses, that they'll prevent us from succeeding. And I want to tell a different story. Anxiety is normal. It's part of being a leader. And being anxious can, in fact, enhance your leadership, your creativity, and your vision. So throughout the season, we'll hear from great leaders who are compassionate, empathetic, and emotionally complicated. Look, we're not here to sugarcoat things. We'll look at the good, the bad, and everything in between. Along the way, I hope we'll answer your questions about whether you can achieve your work dreams, while struggling with a mental health issue, how to disclose them to your boss, how to find the help you need, and how to have constant conversations with yourself, your anxiety, your depression, and everything that comes along with it as you journey on the road to success. Remember, anxiety is normal. Rollo May wrote in the 1950s, Anxiety is essential to the human condition. The presence of anxiety indicates a vitality like a fever. It testifies a struggle going on in the personality. 
which can be very constructive. It can lead to courage and tremendous growth. Part of me believes that. But of course, I'm not sure I've ever had an unanxious day in my life. Well, enter Scott Stossel. Scott is the author of the book, My Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, Dread, and the Search for Peace of Mind. He has been thinking and writing about anxiety for a long time. And one quote he's written that I often think about is, anxiety is produced by the fear within ourselves. So to kick things off, I wanted to talk to Scott about what he's learned about anxiety, how prevalent it is in the workplace, and some of the biggest challenges people with anxiety face in their careers. I started off by asking him where his anxiety comes from. That's a good question. And the bad days range depends on how bad a bad day we're talking about. (laughs) But let's (laughs) say uh, on a really bad day, the getting out of the bed part can be pretty challenging. You know, you're, you're sort of filled with dread and, uh, you know, simply launching myself, um, out of bed and into my day is a challenge. It just feels like the weight of the world and the things that are, that are weighing on me are unbearable. And then, you know, sometimes you can fight through that. Sometimes you can't. And and then sometimes a bad day can be a day that starts out. Okay. And the way that my own anxiety tends to work is, you know, it can be bumping along just fine. And then, uh, something, and it can be a, a anxious trigger, you know, having to do with, with a high stakes public speaking event or just something bad or seemingly bad happens at work or sometimes nothing at all, or something in my body happens that then it sort of just spikes my anxiety and sends my, physiology into kind of a fight or flight response. And, and, you know, if I can't tamp it down into a full-blown panic attack, um, and that, that can just be debilitating and I sort of have to retreat. Now I say they come out of nowhere. Oftentimes, you know, the, the groundwork has been laid because I haven't slept well or because there are anxious stressors or because I haven't gotten exercise for a while or because, um, you know, something is going on or, or some combination of all of those things. One of the things I really appreciated in your book um, <laughs> was how honest you were. I, too, have often had a swig of vodka when I feel that panic coming on. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know, say you really are about to walk onto stage or, you know, walk into that that big meeting where, you know, drinking a, a bit of vodka is not an option do you have tricks that you've learned when you're in a bad state yes and they don't always work um (laughs) and i also have uh, and i don't anymore but i i did used to sometimes take that swig of vodka um in in times when i when i was definitely counterproductive in in the long term you know before a a a high stakes meeting or or a public speaking event and i can talk about those in a sec what what i try to do now for one thing, I've gotten better at just saying no to things. I mean, there's some mm. things that for whatever combination of circumstances just end up feeling like they're too likely to trigger a, a panic episode or an anxious meltdown that would be, you know, bad for me and maybe bad for whoever is committing to, you know, to, to have me appearing. Um, so, so I'm trying to get better about, you know, combating my reflexive tendency to say yes to everything that anyone asked me to do and say, <laughs> you know, what, I'm not sure that's, that's good for me. So there's that. And, and actually that, as a kind of virtuous um, uh, cycle, and that then I feel, you know, have like I have more agency, and I feel less anxious, and I'm actually less likely to have those anxious episodes. Right. Uh, I mean, beyond that, the, the sorts of things I, I I try are all the things 
in the kind of standard um, anxiety combating playbook. I mean, you know, I try to do things like meditation and deep breathing and sort of mindfulness practice where you're trying really hard to stay in the moment. Um, I've done a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy and I have kind of tools and, and tricks from that in terms of just trying to keep the thing, whatever it is, in, in its proper perspective and not catastrophize it. They all work to a certain degree and they all work sometimes. And then sometimes they just don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I do, I do all the things. I mean, I also take as a kind of baseline thing, um, you know, an antidepressant medication. I don't know how well it hurt, helps at this point. Um, but I've been taking various ones for a long time and, and, you know, they have, I think, lowered the, the frequency of panic attacks and kind of generalized anxiety, the, 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 the rumination, it, it sort of cuts down on that. Although, like I say, I've been on them so long. Um, I don't know if I were to stop taking, you know, would it get much worse? The fear that it might is why I don't, but I don't know if it in fact would. What's the current verdict in the medical, psychological, biotech community about whether anxiety disorders are mostly nurture or mostly nature? And at the end of the day, does it matter? Yeah, it's, that is a, 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 a debate that has raged for millennia at this point. And does it matter? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I mean, I think, I think it does matter because it, it, it does determine what the most effective treatments are likely to be and, and, and some, you know, and, and maybe diagnosis eventually, and, and maybe even kind of prophylactic things to, to, to ward off anxiety disorders. That said, the answer is it's both right. my own view, you know, which is based on a lot of people who are, uh, you know, more, have more specialized knowledge than I do is that, you know, your, your predisposition to anxiety is largely or can be largely uh, coded into your genes and, and basically, you know, is something you inherit and that, you know, some people have very high genetic and biological resistance to anxiety and some people have a very high susceptibility to it. That said though, you know, when they do all these, you know, twin studies, which is what, you know, geneticists love to do study twins to figure out how much of something, a given trait is, is, is genetic or not, you know, hundred if 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 uh, anxiety disorders were completely genetic, then two pairs in an identical twin pair would always have uh, anxiety. Mm -hmm. They don't. I mean, you know, they're much more likely to both have it, but they don't all you know so there is clearly uh, unquestionably, I would say, a strong genetic component to um, your level of of anxiety and whether you have an anxiety disorder or depression and lots of other things too. Um, there is also a strong environmental component and um, and that means that you're not faded, uh, you know, even if you have a powerful, you know, a, a large genetic load, as they say, of, of, you know, anxious genes, that doesn't necessarily mean you're completely doomed to, to, uh, you know, permanent, you know, anxiety all the time. And it's also not to say that if you're, you know, kind of resilient, um, by nature that you couldn't be driven into having an anxiety disorder by severe stress or war or trauma, trauma, you know, drives many people into anxiety. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. In your book, your therapist, Dr. W, says something that I love and, and seems to say the root of almost all clinical anxiety is an existential fear of the ontological givens. 
death, failure, shame, loss, or fear of loss. And when I read that, I mean, for me, I believe my anxiety is is based ultimately on a constant fear of the loss of people I love. Um, for some people, it's a sublimated fear of death, right? Disguised as anxiety about more trivial things. And, and many people, of course, fear shame. And I'm curious, uh, after all your work and insight and, and writing on the topic, what you think the basic root of your anxiety is, and also um, if you think it spurred your career choice as a journalist. Um, you would think that you know my having you know spent years researching that book and years in therapy and something like that, I would have a better sense of what actually um, <laughs> uh, is the root of my anxiety. I mean, I, I guess I sort of think it boils down to. As we were just saying a second ago, you know, there's a large genetic component to it. You know, um, you know, high anxiety runs through my family. I do think, you know, that in some ways the parenting I received, even though, you know, I grew up by, you know, global standards in a very comfortable middle class American environment and it was not subject to great deprivation. It was a bad uh, kind of parenting combination, a super overprotective mom, um, a kind of absent, you know, alcoholic dad. You know, there, there was a lot of stuff that contributed to that, that kind of cultivates anxiety in, in lots of kids. Mm-hmm. In terms of what it is that, you know, I am most, you know, what, what is driving my anxiety? I mean, I have thought about this a lot. And, you know, because it does, as I was saying earlier, you come down to so, so much of it is like this physiological thing. I'm like, what is this? You know, it's, is there thought, is there a thought component in it? You know, when I'm having like a kind of, you know, sweating and shaking and, and, and can't think straight and, and, and feeling sick. Is that fear of death or is it just my body? You know, have I ha- had that thought? And then it gets down into like my limbic system, right. and my sympathetic nervous system. And so, I, I mean, I think for the most part, like those severe, all anxious responses, and particularly those severe ones are an evolutionarily adaptive response to go on a ride. It's the fight or flight response. And that, you know, when you're um, confronted by a saber-toothed tiger or a, a war or something very dangerous, you know, those things that are making me feel so awful in those moments or anyone when they're having a panic attack are actually, you know, can be useful in in a true fight or flight thing where you need to, you know, have a spike of adrenaline to fight off something or run away from it or, um, you know, there, and there, there's a lot of, you know, even, even in terms of like your hair standing on and maybe derived from in animals in the state of nature, like look bigger when their hair, you know, when they, when they're, and it maybe scares off a predator. So <laughs> there, there is a kind of atavistic, like, you know, evolutionarily conserved thing here. That's, um, but obviously it's maladaptive and that's the difference between, you know, what, um, in terms of the anxiety disorder and what Dr. W was saying about it being, you know, fear of death and fear of existential things as physiologically rooted as it feels like my anxiety is at its worst. You know, there is some underlying thing that what sets us apart from animals is that, I mean, even dogs and monkeys, like they know sometimes when uh, their owner has died and, and, and they grieve and elephants too. But for the most part, I do, you know, there's no sense that they are cog- they're afraid of death. Right. They don't have existential concerns. And so kind of overlaid a, 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 on top of this kind of hardwired fight or flight response that's built into everything from like lizards, you know, up through higher primates, we have the capacity to kind of, you know, impose these existential things that just kind of deepen it all. And we're aware of our own eventual demise, which is a pretty scary thing. <laughs> and so I, I, in the end, I don't know, you know, I, you know, when I'm having a, a public speaking panic attack or, you know, and, and, uh, you know, one of my phobias is, is king up, is that fear of death? Is it, is it, um, you know, something to do with my upbringing? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's in my wiring. I know it, it's it's so weird, right? Like, you know, you're about to go on stage and give a speech. And so all of a sudden, the sort of existential threat that people you love will die, how does it match up? It just 
doesn't really make sense. And yet it seems like there's a lot of literature around these, you know, big stressors that we constantly stew on creating these moments of panic at seemingly, you know, not life-threatening moments. Well, right. And, that, and the public speaking one is interesting. Um, it, it often feels to me like I'll be up there and suddenly I just, it's, it's, there's no thought that I can perceive. It's just all those eyes are on me. And it's like, I'm Cindy Brady in that Brady Bunch episode where the light <laughs> goes on and I, and I just, I literally can't speak. And like, there's no thought. I do think that I mean, there is a lot of literature about, is it fear of embarrassment or shame and kind of, you know, kind of almost getting existentially crushed or something exactly. by, by disapproval or, or, or failure. Again, I'm not having those conscious thoughts in that moment, but I think a lot of people believe that they're there. It's very complex. Well, okay, so what's the upside of anxiety in a professional context? I'm curious. There are a a number, at least I would like to think there are. I mean, and and, and it really is kind of the other side of the coin and a lot of anxious traits, like as as bad as they can be, there there can be kind of a silver lining or or an associated good trait. You know, for one thing, the, the kind of thing that anxious people have um, that that scientists called hypervigilance, which is, you know, the thing that ma- you're, you're worrying about everything. And so you're always scanning the horizon, literally or metaphorically, kind of, wor- you know, what are the things that are going to come up and kill me or make me feel pain? And, you know, if someone has anxiety disorder, that can be unproductive and debilitating. And most things are not going to kill you or cause you pain. In a work environment, though, it means you're very attuned to what's going on. And you can read, you know, you, you, you may be overreading situations and maybe reading them too negatively, but you're probably going to be more prepared for bad things that come around. You can kind of think around corners. And, and I think, uh, well, actually, Dr. W, you, you quoted earlier, he talked about how so many of his patients were lawyers. And he said they were, and so many, um, and they were really good lawyers because <laughs> they, they were good about like worrying about every kind of worst case eventuality on behalf of their clients, which was great for their clients, maybe not so good for them because it made them, uh, the lawyers themselves made them anxious and miserable. Um, people who are socially anxious in particular, they have a version of the, or a variant of the hypervigilance where they're sort of monitoring everyone's responses. Again, the downside of this is that it can become debilitating. You're always, you know, worrying about how you're coming across. You have an overly negative sense of how people are perceiving you. You're um, sort of obsessing about what people are thinking about you when they're probably in fact not thinking about you. But you know, you probably are more empathetic. You're probably better able to project yourself into other people's points of view than somebody who is low on anxiety, and therefore, you know, maybe better able to relate to people. To to, again, you know, as a manager, it can make you more effective because you're better able to anticipate how something you're saying or communicating or that's being communicated by your company will come across to a given individual and be better able to help them manage that. You know, and and it flips the the, the people who are super neurotic. Again, this isn't true 100% across the board, but conscientiousness. Mm -hmm. um, A lot of things I've read by other people who have written anxious memoirs, you know, there's a kind of common trait about many people, you know, some people who are super anxious and, you know, come across as super anxious. A lot of high achieving anxious people, they feel super anxious and they may even have meltdowns, but they work really, really hard to appear not anxious, which makes them seem competent and in control. And in fact, they are competent and in control because they are so conscientious. And, you know, the danger is, is it, does it slide into you know, excessive people pleasing? But again, th- this can all be adapted because, you know, you'll tend to be work hard, be motivated, you know, and anxiety is a great motivator. 
I want to talk about the role of anxiety and ambition. Um, there was a quote, you quoted Karen Horney, who is a Freudian in your book, and, and she talked about, I'm going to read the quote, actually, because it's interesting. A standard behavioral tick of the neurotic is to reduce himself to nothing in order to relieve the pressure to accomplish anything. Almost as if she's saying that embracing your neuroticism or your anxiety disorder is an excuse for not achieving your ambitions, right? And and facing a reality that you can't measure up. It's funny because I, I don't see it that way, but I'm curious if in your research or your experience, you, you have met people or if you yourself have considered, well, I can't do X, Y, and Z because of my anxiety, so I'm not even going to try. That is a temptation sometimes or, or a danger, I guess I should say. Um, to basically just say, well, it's, I, you know, I'm I, I'm cursed with this anxiety disorder. It's an excuse. I'm um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try. I think kind of what Horny is getting at is something si- similar but slightly different and 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 related. And this is something I'm definitely guilty of, which is, you know, it, again, it's the fear of negative consequences and the constant and mm-hmm. and you know that, that if you sort of have a built-in uh, well, it's, t- it's two things. A lot of th- that she's talking about, you know, a lot of people with the neurotic temperament and people who suffer from depression, which relate, you know, tend to feel they have low self-esteem and feel um, like they- bad about themselves and feel like they are not worthy. They have a sort of self-worth problem. And, that, and so what they tend to do, often maladaptively, but sometimes it spurs ambition, is if you look, if only I could achieve X, Y, and Z, you know, if I were, if I could make vice president or if I were the CEO or if I made this much money or if I make this person be my boyfriend or girlfriend or if I achieve these externally validating measures of success, then I will feel better about myself um, to escape from this kind of natural state of being. So th- what that launches is then ambition. You're going to try to get that girlfriend or boyfriend. You're going to try to make vice president. You're going to try to you know hit your sales goals or exceed them. And you're trying to get a you know have an exceptional performance. So everybody you know it, it becomes outwardly apparent how amazing and lovable you are, and you will then conquer those internal feelings of low self worth. So that can be a spur to great success. It's of course. I'm starting to feel like not such an adaptive uh, spur because you get to that higher level. And then, you know, I think what tends to happen is, God, I still feel like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm worthless. I need to do even more. And it's kind of a hedonic treadmill where you're, 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 you're running faster and faster and faster to chase after something that needs to kind of come a little bit more from, from within. So even though it, it can motivate legitimate uh, achievement. It's not always uh, a, 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 a route to contentment. The other thing for me, and then this is, I, I, I do find myself reflexively falling into it, is like I build, you know, the stakes start to become so high in a given situation. And so it's like I'll build in the expectation of failure from the beginning. It, I mean, it's not even a conscious thing, but it's like, well, I, I'm doomed to fail anyway because I'm so, I'm, I have anxiety disorder and I'm, I'm a neurotic failure anyway. So no one, ex- you know, I can't expect anything of myself. No one can expect anything of me. Um, if I can just get through this, it'll be all right, you know, let alone if I succeed. And it's sort of anticipating the worst case scenario um, so that when it comes, you feel like, okay, well, I was expecting it anyway. Exactly. The flip side of that, of course, is that, you know, it's like if you, you, you're living through, you know, the worst case scenario twice because you're fearing it and then experiencing it. And, you know, there's a lot of research that suggests your attitude, a positive attitude can help produce a more positive outcome. So. And it's interesting. I mean, I do that too, but I also find that the older I get and the more I follow my intrinsic motivation, right? So not what will make other people happy or, you know, what looks shiny, but the things that I really want to pursue in life, I'm still anxious about them. So then I just work so hard on them and attempt such a level of perfection 
that I usually don't screw up anymore, but the process getting there feels really exhausting. <laughs> I don't know if you experience that too. Um, you're yes, no, I can. It can feel exhausting. What, what do you do? I mean, what kind of things you know particularly exhaust you when you're when you're going through that? I think just the over preparation and the ruminating, like the coming up with yeah. thirty seven different worst case scenarios. <laughs> you know, when I get laughed off the stage. Yep, <laughs> it, it is. It's exhausting. <laughs> Um, so, so I want to talk about leadership a little bit because, you know, I think there's a lot of agreement that anxiety can make people really conscientious, great workers, you know, very attuned. Have you in your, in your time interviewed or, or read about or thought about any of our great leaders who are extremely anxious and, um, perhaps qualities that their anxiety lent them that helped them become great leaders? Yeah, I mean, I talk in my book a little bit about, I mean, Gandhi, you know, had acute public speaking phobia, maybe Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, I don't know if it was so much anxiety as kind of, you know, what they called melancholy then or, or, or depression. But in all those cases, um, all those traits I was talking about before, which is, you know, ability to read situations, ability to feel empathy and therefore know what motivates people and be understanding and being able to anticipate sometimes um, those worst case scenarios. So yeah, I, I do think that there are plenty of examples of people who you know sort of overcame anxiety and, and, and were managed to harness it. I mean, there were these fascinating stories. This is not studies, this is not from famous people, but of um, you know, primates where they were measuring they basically bred these, you know, sort of you know, genetically anxious monkeys and then uh, anxiety resistant monkeys, and then kind of put them into different social situations. And, you know, the 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 general feeling I think going in was that, oh, well, the anxious monkeys end up becoming like, you know, they're they're at the bottom of the monkey hierarchy because they're anxious, they have low serotonin, um, they're always getting kind of, you know, beaten up. And that is true in some cases if they don't, if if they have anxious temperaments genetically and anxious upbringing, you know, things that, 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 uh, uh, uh unproductive parenting. Right. If you take people who have anxious temperaments at birth and then you put them in a healthy adaptive environment, those monkeys often became the alpha males in the troop or alpha females. Um, because it was sort of like that combination of, uh, uh, anxious hardwiring and, um, learning adaptive skills through environment made them really, really good leaders and better than the, you know, the thug beat everyone up leaders. Um, <laughs> um, and also, and, 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 and better than, the um, you know, the ones who were sort of so anxious, they were able, unable to get out of a, out of a corner. But yeah, I find, I found myself, you know, just in, in, in reading some of these accounts of, of not just leaders, but, 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 you know, thinkers like Darwin who, you know, seem like they suffered acutely from anxiety, but then managed to accomplish like really great world changing things, you know, it didn't make me think that I could be Darwin, but that like, well, it, you know, they were going through it and were able to kind of persevere through it. It just somehow made me feel better that maybe I could persevere through whatever I was going through. I have to tell you, I told someone your Darwin example the other day, because I thought if Darwin suffering like he did could travel halfway around the world in a, in a leaky boat, you know, I, you can surely, you know, slept, you know, step on this commuter jet to LaGuardia and, you know, do your thing. Um, 
I think it, I thought it was very, very helpful to think of of poor Darwin in the Beagle suffering, but doing it anyway. Yeah, although those commuter jets are pretty scary. I agree with you. <laughs> well, that, that, that is true. Well, you know, looking at yourself, I mean, you you haven't let the excuse of your anxiety prevent you from achieving so much in your career. And I'm I'm curious. Uh, I know you've had many road bumps along the way. What would you tell yourself, your younger self, about what your road to um, success would feel like and what to worry about and what to worry less about? One thing I think I would tell young me um, is something that I try to tell my actual, you know, my kids um, and my son, my son, (laughs) my son is 12 and, 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 you know, I can see in him many of the same traits that I had uh, is, is to go easier on yourself. I mean, it's so easy and I still do it. uh, But, but to just beat yourself up, you know, when you have a setback, and this is true again of, of, of people suffering from depression too, but 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 also anxiety. That any, you know, every time, no matter how well I'm doing in life, and I, and, and you know, I have a panic attack or some anxious meltdown, and I feel like God, there I go, I'm back to really reduced to my lowest common denominator. And what you know, you have to realize that you know, you, you it doesn't, you're not stuck in that state. And so I, you know, young me who felt like, oh my God. This is also overwhelming. It's never going to get any better. Uh, I'm never going to be able to escape anxiety. I mean, one key thing I think I, that I'm still learning, but it would be I wish I could have learned when I was, you know, nine or twelve, is that it's true. I can't ever escape anxiety, and I'm and I'm never going to escape anxiety, and I shouldn't try. I just need to learn to kind of embrace it and accept it. And that and that at twelve, and even at now at fifty, that's a pretty terrifying thought. But now I'm I'm starting to realize actually, accept it. It's 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 real, uh, and it's okay. And it will get better. You know, this too shall pass. Um, so I would, I would, I would tell young me that, um, and just that, you know, as bad as it sometimes seemed and as bad as I felt about myself for how bad things seemed, some of those traits actually were going to prove worthwhile, you know, useful to me. And I would, you know, be able to achieve things. And I I think if I, I, I do wonder if I'd actually known, you know, some of the things that I would achieve later on, um, when I was a teenager, you know, would that have made a difference? I probably would have. I mean, I would have been freaked out, but the fact that my future me was coming back in time to tell me these things. Um, but aside from that, um, it would have been useful. Could have, could have helped. Yeah. I, it's funny though, because one of the things I also found so helpful in, in learning about you and your, your work is that you, you have come to this sort of place of radical acceptance, right? My anxiety is part of me. I feel the same way, but it, it seems sort of un-American to say that, <laughs> you know, like we, we have this approach that it, this too shall pass. And if you just get enough therapy and take enough meds, it will go away. You know, what do you say to people who think, oh, it should go away? This is not who you are. I mean, I think for some people it can go away and I wouldn't you know, discourage anyone from trying it. You know, it has to do with how you know, severely anxious you are. And some people, you know, they go through a short course of therapy and, and they really are cured. I think for many more people, and certainly for me, um, um, you know, it is so deeply ingrained in my temperament. You know, I, 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 uh, it is in my hard wiring. And so that part of me is just, it's not going to go away. And, 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 you know, I'm going to, it's like beating myself a head against the wall in order, you know, to, to think that I can get rid of it. So, you know, learning that I can manage it and learning to accept it is just a much more adaptive thing. And, and I'm still, you know, I work on this with my therapist now, you know, the irony is, um, and there are a lot of cruel ironies having to do with anxiety, but, but, a, but a nice irony is that the more I can actually accept my anxiety, uh, or that, you know, the more that anyone can accept, you know, your life is full of things that make you anxious. You are going to feel anxious. The more you accept that actually 
the less anxious you will then be. So there's a perverse kind of Zen <laughs> koan of if you know the, the more you accept it, the less you'll have to deal with it. Um, easier said than done, I can say from the experience, but I, I do believe it to be true. Scott Stossel, I want to thank you very much for your time and um, your continued work on this topic and, and so much else. Uh, well, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed talking to you. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to tell us your story, drop me a note at anxiousachiever at gmail.com or you can tweet me at Mora A.M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review, my producer, Mary Dew, the team at Podcast Garage, and all of our guests who are telling us their stories from the heart. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever.